0: Um, We are in Revelation, and we finished uh, in Revelation. uh, We did not actually get through chapter 1. We tried hard, but we didn't make it. And where we stopped, uh, and I'll pick it up at uh, 117. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw at my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so where we left off last time is we wanted to talk about keys, or at least I did, um, and there wasn't enough time to do that, and there may not be enough time tonight to do that, uh, but we'll take a run at it. All right, keys are not actually mentioned very often in Scripture. Uh, If you do a a word search, you come up with eight verses that mention keys. Okay? And the first one, which is in Judges, doesn't really pertain to what we're doing. Okay? So, I mean, if you want to look it up, it's in Judges 3.25, and it's basically just... Uh, narrative of something that's going on and, you know, they're going up the stairs to the roof chamber and somebody takes out a key and opens the door. So, I mean, it isn't symbolic at all. The next one is the key to the house of David. And that's mentioned twice, okay? It's mentioned in Isaiah 22, 22, and it's mentioned again in Revelation 3, 7 one of the things I want to suggest to you is that there are three keys in scripture, three distinct keys. Okay. So the first one is the key to the house of David. Then the next one is the key to the kingdom of heaven. And that's in Matthew 16, 19. Okay. And then the final one or the final two, depending on how you count it, is the one we read tonight, which is the keys to death and Hades. Um, and that one shows up if it's the same key, um, again, twice in Revelation, in Revelation 9.1 and in Revelation 20-1, where you have two different angelic beings coming down from heaven, having been given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay? Now, whether or not the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit is the same as the key to death in Hades, you know that would that would certainly be up for grabs. Uh, I don't know for sure which way it is. So you've, you've either got three or four keys that are mentioned in Scripture. Keys to the house of David, keys to the kingdom of heaven, keys to death in Hades, and maybe the same key or maybe a diff- different key, the key to the bottomless pit. So first off, just a general thing on keys. For those of you who have ever been in the corporate world, if you see somebody walking around with a big wad of keys, he's not very important. Exactly. Now don't get me wrong, he is an important person, but in the corporate hierarchy, he is not the one that makes all the money. The guy that is really important in the corporate hierarchy has one key, And that's a key to the executive washroom. Okay? No, I'm serious. He doesn't carry, I mean, he may carry car keys and all that kind of stuff, but as far as the organization is concerned, he ain't carrying any keys. So, first thing to understand is the possession of keys does not indicate necessarily importance. What they typically represent is a trusted servant, And that's certainly the the case that I just described. You know, where you've got the maintenance guy, he is a trusted servant. He has access to virtually every nook and cranny in the organization, and he is trusted to do his job. So, when you look at tonight's passage, where you have Yeshua having the keys to death in Hades, I will suggest that that may not mean that he is the CEO but that he's a servant and and we're going to talk about what that means and, and what that may mean in just a few minutes so I'm going to s- skip the house of David for right now because we're going to come to the house of David later in Revelation 3 and that will be one of the titles that he uses for himself when he's writing to the church at Philadelphia Okay. So in the seven letters to the seven churches, you've got the letter to Philadelphia, and, and, and in each one of those letters there's a salutation. And, and we'll probably we may get into that tonight. And the salutation, he describes himself as something. And in the, in the case of Philadelphia, he's the one who has the keys to, to the kingdom of David. What he describes himself as has bearing on the letter that he writes to each church okay so with your permission we'll defer the kingdom of the keys to the house of David until we get to Philadelphia so that leaves the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the keys to death and Hades and perhaps the bottomless pit so let's start with in Matthew 16 19 and this is Yeshua talking to Peter and he said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So first off, I'm suggesting to you that Peter is getting a set of keys as a servant. Peter is, is not the master, if you will. He is a servant. And so again, he's getting a set of keys that lets him in some place or lets him do something in his capacity as a servant. Binding and loosing is a rabbinic term, and what it has to do with is establishing halaha. okay And halaha, for those of you who are not been at this a long time, is a Hebrew word that means how do you walk it out? It comes from the word uh, to walk. And what the rabbis do and what they say they are doing, as an extension to what Moses did. Remember, uh, Moses would sit all day and people would come to him with questions, disputes, whatever, and he would basically consult God and answer them. Remember, his, his father-in-law Jethro says, you're going to burn yourself out there, bucko. You really need to delegate this. And so he sets up the 70 elders and and delegates judgment down into the nation, and only the most important things then rise to the level of a, of a Moses-level question. Pretty much everything else is handled locally. And the things that you might ask, in addition to simply settling a dispute between neighbors, I mean, that would certainly be one of the things that you would do. In other words, you know, he sold me this horse and it went lame, and and, you know, that kind of stuff. That would certainly be a function of the judges. But perhaps a more important function would be, this happened. What does that mean in the light of the Word of God? And I'll give you an example, a rabbinic example. There was a, and this is used, by the way, to by the rabbis to establish rabbinic authority. I'll just tell you up front that that's how they use this particular story there was a, a very famous rabbi in some eastern european city well known you know throughout the world a very famous guy and they also had a local rabbi that you know sort of took care of the flock there and a woman was preparing a chicken and as she was preparing the chicken a drop of blood came out of it and so you know, she had to get the chicken cooking because Shabbat, you know, sundown was approaching. So, so this was a time-critical question, okay? And the question was, is the chicken okay to eat? And so she sends her husband to the rabbi, you know, the, the local rabbi. And he doesn't come back, and he doesn't come back, and he doesn't come back. And she's standing there like this, you know, with the stuffing, and you know, what do we do? So she then goes to this great sage who lives closer and asks him the same question. So the great sage says, it's not good to eat. And about that time she comes home, well, what am I going to do for supper? Because the chicken's no good. Her husband shows up and says, the rabbi says it's good. So here you have the local rabbi has said it's good. This great Torah sage and scholar has says it's no good. What do you do? What The, the way the story was resolved is the local rabbi went to the Torah sage and says, I'm the authority here. It's good. And the Torah says, you're right. You are the authority. And to show that you are the authority, I will come to that house tonight and I will have some of that chicken. Okay. In other words, merely you saying it's true and sort of outranking me not in Torah knowledge but in local authority isn't going to be good enough. So to make sure that everybody understands that I agree with you, I'm going to come to that supper tonight and I'm going to have some of that chicken so everybody will see that your ruling is good. And so we, so they go there and, and as they're, you know, they're serving, and of course the, the woman has got the great rabbi in her house for supper and it's Shabbat and she's all a Twitter and, and you know all, all that kind of stuff. So it, it, and she's bringing in some of the soup that's made with the chicken a drop of tallow from a candle falls into the, his soup bowl, and of course, at that point, everybody agrees that he can't eat the soup, because although the tallow from the is, is beef tallow, it's hasn't been handled in a way that food would be handled. So the the soup is is trafe; it's it's contaminated; it can't be eaten. So the whole thing is settled. You know, everybody else eats the chicken soup except the rabbi. And so he's, you know, the great sage. yeah, the great sage. Thank you. And so everything comes out well. But all that is by way of saying there are lots and lots of questions that come up in daily life. that You want to go to somebody and say, what about this? In the case, it's a simple chicken. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with this chicken and I was, you know, it was a kosher chicken. I bought it from the but. But here's I'm cleaning it. A drop of blood comes out. What do I do? And, and so the rabbis say that what Moses was doing and what was delegated down was the ability to hear these kinds of questions and give you an authoritative ruling. And they say, the chicken's good or the chicken's not good. Matzah, 18 minutes from the time the water hits the dough. If you got it in the oven, it's good matzah. If you don't, it's not. You know, all those just kind of questions on how do you walk it out. So as we read in... in Matthew, thank you. As we read in Matthew, the Jewish understanding of getting the keys of the kingdom of heaven would be being given the authority to make those kinds of decisions. Binding and loosing. He is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven for purposes of binding and loosing, and the way the rabbis would understand that is as I just described it. When people come to Peter and ask him a question, you know, is the chicken okay or is not, he has the authority to answer that question. And that, by the way, is the basis of papal authority. Remember, in the Catholic Church, when the, when the Pope speaks uh, ex cathedra, which is from the chair, right, he is basically saying, I am speaking from the seat of Moses, and I am making a halachic ruling that is binding on Catholics. Fish on Friday, you know, whatever, you know, all these things that you, you know, those of you who grew up Catholic or grew up around Catholics, all these strange things that Catholics do are all based on this particular passage of Scripture. Yeah? But what does it really mean? That's, that's, I think that's, that is what it means. I think that is what it means. In other words, what... what Men have the... What you... No. The authority to yes. perfect God's laws. Yes, yes what they have the authority to do is establish halaha. In our community, this is the way we do it. Okay, We have halaha in this church. In this church, the way we do it is this. It's, a jurisdiction question. it's Of course, it's a jurisdiction question. Exactly. And the whole point is, the word of God is sparse. In other words, he doesn't give you 36 pages of case law when he talks about these things. So what has to happen is things as you live people make interpretations and of course the problem is you get an incrustation of that and pretty soon it gets to be unbearable which is what's happened with Judaism and Catholicism quite frankly so many questions that have been codified that you've got a whole bunch of stuff that is being used in a way that wasn't necessarily originally intended and it gets ossified into law and, and people get really bent about it, the axle about it, okay so that's what the keys to the kingdom of he- heaven are, I believe alright, so now that leaves us with the key to death and Hades and this is where it's going to get weird so where we want to go let's we'll start in the book of Job and I want to go to Job 12 and I'm going to pick it up in, in Job 12:13. And this is Job speaking. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. So you have shutting in and opening. And what I'm suggesting to you is we're talking about keys there. So one of the things that God is able to do, and again, remember what Job's circumstances are here. Job is under terrible affliction. And so, one of the things that, God, that Job is saying is if God has shut me in, there's no way I'm getting out until he lets me out. Okay, and again, we're talking keys, if you will. All right, so from there, let's go to Psalm 68. I'm just going to take you through a series of scriptures here, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike down the heads of enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in the guilty ways, and so forth. So again, what we have here is a deliverance from death. And I'm going to suggest that that correlates to the keys to death in Hades. And remember, I said earlier that the keys are in the hands of a servant. So in this case, the servant would be Yeshua. All right, now here's where it gets fun. Let's back up to Job 26. And let's pick it up uh, at verse 2. How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and faithfully declared sound knowledge with whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants sheol is naked before god and abaddon has no covering isn't the same name as yes comment was isn't that the name of the angel who has the bo- who has charge over the bottomless pit moving along to job 28 i'm going to pick it up at verse 20 from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air abaddon and death say we have heard of rumor of it with our ears you've got here death and abaddon yes In you've got death of Hades, and yeah. death of I will right, we'll take a sidestep here. You want to be in Revelation 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and so on. All right. Who has got the key to the bottomless pit here? The star that fell. The star that fell. Who has got the key here? Satan. Satan. Right? Because when we get to Revelation uh, Revelation 20 you're going to have another angel go down with a key to the pit but he's going to have a chain in his hands. This this angel in 9 doesn't have a chain in his hands. What he's doing is unlocking the door and letting all this stuff out. So you have two different cases where you've got somebody with a key to the bottomless pit and in The first case, he's letting out, basically, demons onto the earth. In the second place, he's going down there with a chain to bind things up. Two different situations. Anyway, back in chapter 9, and he's talking about the demon locusts in 7 through 10, and then verse 11. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. So if we go back to Job, which is where I was just a minute ago, 28, or 20, yeah, 28, 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Notice Abaddon and death. Abaddon is the angel that has the pit. Now, let's think about what's going on here. The question is, from where then does wisdom come? The, The question in this paragraph is, where do we get wisdom? Where does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? That place is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. The place where wisdom comes from, that is hidden. And Abaddon and death say... We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. In other words, about and death don't know where that place is or have not been in that place. We all together? Let me know if I go too fast on this because this is weird. I'll be the first to admit it. All right. So now, from there, let's go to Proverbs. And I'm going to go start with Proverbs 27. Yep. Verse 20. Actually, I'm going to pick it up at verse 19. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. So what it's saying here is, as in water, you're looking into water, a face reflects a face. Right? And in the same way, the heart of a man reflects the man. In other words, the stuff that comes out of your mouth and out of your actions reflect what is in your heart, right? And he's, and what he's saying here, in the same way, water in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of men, of man. All with me? So now let's back up to Proverbs 15 verse 11 Sheol and abaddon lie open before the Lord how much more the hearts of the children of man this this is it's a rabbinic argument heavy and light <clears throat> okay. it says sheol and abaddon lie open before the Lord that's light heavy is how much more then the hearts of the children of men lay open before the Lord in other words if sheol and abaddon are open before the Lord how much more then is your heart open before the Lord all right, now now we can go to Revelation, and let's go back to uh, Revelation nine. All right, so now verse 9, Revelation nine it was where we were just before. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from the heaven to earth, and he was given to key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And, and, and our question here of the evening is, what is the bottomless pit? He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, like locusts, or in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their head were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth, and their breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots, with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. Okay. So the question of the day is, what is the bottomless pit, and where is the bottomless pit? I think that the bottomless pit is the human heart. Is the human heart. Oh, I, th- I think what we're talking about here is the human heart. And the one who has the key to the bottomless pit is the angel who was cast out of heaven, doesn't he? And what do we have in the human heart? Isn't isn't that where all of the woes on the earth come from? Absolutely, Don't they come from the human heart? And, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that this isn't also literally going to happen, okay? I'm not trying to allegorize, if you will, the book of Revelation. That's not what I'm trying to do. But one of the things I see as I went through that series of scriptures is he was talking about the human heart in every case, in every case. As I went through that chain of scriptures, it was just becoming more and more obvious to me that this is talking about the human heart. Where does death and Hades reside? In the human heart. In the human heart. If you do a word study on the heart, which we did, what, four or five years ago? And you start, the very first mention of the heart is in back in Genesis, okay, before the flood. And God saw the heart of man and it was wicked. Remember, let's go back and look at it. Yeah, here it is, 6.5, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, I don't believe you can get more thorough than that, right? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sure, the question was... The Torah was given at Sinai, but we know reading scripture that Torah is far older than Sinai, and, and of course it is. Torah is God's blueprint for how he made the universe, so it, it pre-existed Sinai. And we see in the in the stories before Sinai, we see Torah behavior that is later codified. Okay, And we see things, for example, how do you have evil if you don't have Torah? In other words, you have to have a standard against which you can measure evil. So what you have here is God is saying that the human heart is only evil continuously. Okay. Now let's come back to Revelation. What key has Yeshua been given? What key does he have in the, in the pet? The key to death in Hades. Where is death in Hades? If, if I'm anywhere near correct. In our, in our hearts. So what key does he have? Yes. And he is then the only one who can unlock you. Remember back in Job, it says, if God shuts you up, no one can unshut you. Right? Remember back in Job, in one of the places I went? And this idea of being shut away, the only one who can release you from being shut away, then, is the one who has that key. Yes. Yeah, and that's what the key's for. Remember, he says he came to set the captives free in Isaiah. That's one of his jobs. Where are we chained? But here, come back to Job 28.20. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. In the next verse that God understands the way to it. Yes. And God understands the way to it and he knows its place. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that is what Yeshua is talking about when he says, I've got the keys to death and Hades. I've got the keys to let you out. I've got the key just to unlock your heart. I've got the keys to set you free. I think that's what that means. And again, I'm, having said that, I am not denying that at some point the earth is may open up and we've got demon locusts up to our hips. You know, I mean, that, that could be the case. But I'm saying that there's a second meaning to it. Yeah. All right, what I want to do is take a minute. Let, let, let's take a minute and lay the groundwork for the seven churches. Uh, we got about ten, or about seven or eight minutes and we can do that. Um, I am using a reference. Um, Chuck Missler had, has a uh, series on Revelation, and it's like 24 tapes or something like that. And this is the, the notes that go with it. And I've listened to his series on Revelations a number of years ago. Things I don't agree with, lots that I do, but one of the strengths of his notes is he has done all the historical research. And he has written down, you know, what city is what and what its history is and what happened there and, you know, what the characteristics were of the place and what the name means and, you know, on and on and on. So he's done all that research, if you will. So I'm just going to use that. You know, he's a pre-tribulation rapture guy, so I don't agree with that. And, you know, so there'll be lots of stuff in his teachings now that I wouldn't agree with. But his his research is perfectly good, so I will use that. All right. So you've got the seven churches, and there are several interpretations of what those churches, why those churches, what that means, who they were, and what the letters mean. Uh, as we get into the letters, you'll see that each letter four, is in the same format. In other words, it's like a form letter. And so you have a greeting at the beginning, and in that greeting, Yeshua uses a different title for himself to each church and as i said at the beginning of the hour the title that he uses for each church has to do with the character and the condition of the church itself okay so each one is different one way to look at it which is correct is that these are seven literal churches that john is writing seven pastoral letters to or or taking dictation from Yeshua is perhaps a better way to say it. I mean, John's doing the writing, and that's true. There are or were seven churches in those seven cities, and we have record in the apostolic scriptures of some of the things that they did. So the seven letters to seven churches is, is perfectly sound as just literal. Okay, it means literally what it means because those are the churches that they are and those churches had these specific problems and Yeshua is writing to correct them. Yes. yes. The question was, all seven existed simultaneously at this time and the answer to that is yes. Two of them still exist. Five of them are gone. No. The, 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 the churches, uh, as I understand it, and I'm again relying on Missler's scholarship, the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of uh, Smyrna still exist. The rest of them are gone. The next reading of this is that these represent seven types of churches at any time. So you have a church out there that looks like Ephesus. You have a church out there that looks like Laodicea. Lots of you may have come out of one of those and and so forth. Okay, So it, it represents, if you will seven typical conditions of local churches at any time and any place. That, that also works, and I believe that's correct. Third way to look at it, which I also believe is correct, is that these seven churches represent seven stages in the history of the body of Messiah from his death until the end, whenever that is. So, uh, and and I'll go through those quickly. At least as Missler gives them, and I listened to Missler, and I agreed with him. So I agree with this. There may be another list. So Ephesus would be the church in the apostolic age, uh, you know, when the apostles were still living. And and uh, Smyrna would be the age of persecution, uh, from approximately 100 A.D. to 313 A.D., give or take. Pergamos would represent the imperial church when. Basically, the Roman government merged with the church, or vice versa, and that would have been the era from 313 to 590. Thyatira would represent the age of the papacy from 590 to the present. Sardis would represent the Reformation. Philadelphia would represent the missionary church, and then Laodicea would represent the apostate church. As you look at the history of the church, you can see you know, the whole body, if you will, sort of going through those stages. So I believe all three of those ways of looking at it are valid. And as we go through it, what we'll do is we'll look at each church from each of those three perspectives. Um, It turns out, for example, that the names of the city match the condition of the church, So, for example, uh, Smyrna uh, was the church under persecution, and the church at Smyrna is being persecuted according to the letter. Smyrna comes from the word for myrrh, which is a funereal spice, and it's used to embalm or to prepare bodies for burial, and myrrh gives off its fragrance when it's crushed. So with each of the each of the city names if you will matches the spiritual condition of the church of, the, of that local church matches the subject of the letter and matches if you will a historical era. It's all coincidence of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I the two churches you said survived are the ones that doesn't really have
1: anything negative so
0: That's correct. Bad. Yeah, that's correct. The only two churches to survive are the ones about which he has nothing negative to say. And those two churches still exist, at least according to Missler. I, I'm, and I'm going with his scholarship. and he, He's, a, as far as I know, a perfectly competent biblical scholar. In fact, he's a pretty good one. All right. So with that, next time we will dive into the church at Ephesus. And God willing, we'll move faster than we did tonight. <laughs> Please consider becoming a sponsor please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.